BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy in El Segundo, California. Chapter 8 If it were true that she was in love, she was certainly very quiet about it. But the doctor was, of course, prepared to admit that her quietness might mean volumes. She had told Morris Townsend that she would not mention him to her father, and she saw no reason to retract this vow of discretion. It was no more than decently civil, of course, that after having dined in Washington Square, Morris should call there again, and it was no more than natural that, having been kindly received on this occasion, he should continue to present himself. He had had plenty of leisure on his hands, and thirty years ago in New York a young man of leisure had reason to be thankful for aids to self-oblivion. Catherine said nothing to her father about these visits, though they had rapidly become the most important, the most absorbing thing in her life. The girl was very happy. She knew not as yet what would come of it, but the present had suddenly grown rich and solemn. If she had been told she was in love, she would have been a good deal surprised, for she had an idea that love was an eager and exacting passion, and her own heart was filled in these days with the impulse of self-effacement and sacrifice. Whenever Morris Townsend had left the house, her imagination projected itself, with all its strength, into the idea of his soon coming back. But if she had been told at such a moment that he would not return for a year, or even that he would never return, she would not have complained nor rebelled, but would have humbly accepted the decree, and sought for consolation in thinking over the time she had already seen him, the words he had spoken, the sound of his voice, of his tread, the expression of his face. Love demands certain things as a right, but Catherine had no sense of her rights. She had only a consciousness of immense and unexpected favors. Her very gratitude for these things had hushed itself, for it seemed to her that there would be something of impudence in making a festival of her secret. Her father suspected Morris Townsend's visits, and noted her reserve. 
she seemed to beg pardon for it she looked at him constantly in silence as if to say that she said nothing because she was afraid of irritating him but the poor girl's dumb eloquence irritated him more than anything else would have done and he caught himself murmuring more than once that it was a grievous pity his only child was a simpleton his murmurs however were inaudible and for a while he said nothing to any one he would have liked to know exactly how often young townsend came but he had determined to ask no questions of the girl herself to say nothing more to her that would show that he watched her the doctor had a great idea of being largely just he wished to leave his daughter her liberty and interfere only when the danger should be proved it was not in his manner to obtain information by indirect methods and it never even occurred to him to question the servants as for lavinia he hated to talk to her about the matter she annoyed him with her mock romanticism but he had to come to this mrs pennyman's convictions as regards the relations of her niece and the clever young visitor who saved appearances by coming ostensibly for both the ladies mrs pennyman's convictions had passed into a riper and richer phase there was to be no crudity in mrs pennyman's treatment of the situation she had become as uncommunicative as catherine herself she was tasting of the sweets of concealment she had taken up the line of mystery she would be enchanted to be able to prove to herself that she was persecuted said the doctor and when at last he questioned her he was sure she would contrive to extract from his words a pretext for this belief be so good as to let me know what is going on in this house he said to her in a tone which under the circumstances he himself deemed genial going on austin mrs pennyman exclaimed why i am sure i don't know i believe that last night the old grey cat had kittens at her age said the doctor the idea is startling almost shocking be so good as to see that they are all drowned but what else has happened ah the dear little kittens cried mrs pennyman i wouldn't have them drowned for the world her brother puffed his cigar a few moments in silence your sympathy with kittens lavinia he presently resumed arises from a feline element in your own character cats are very graceful and very clean said mrs pennyman smiling and very stealthy you are the embodiment of both grace and of neatness but you are wanting in frankness you certainly are not dear brother i don't pretend to be graceful though i try to be neat why haven't you let me know that mr morris townsend is coming to the house four times a week mrs pennyman lifted her eyebrows four times a week three times then or five times if you prefer it i am away all day and i see nothing but when such things happen you should let me know mrs pennyman with her eyebrows still raised reflected intently dear austin she said at last i am incapable of betraying a confidence i would rather suffer anything never fear you shall not suffer to whose confidence is it you allude 
"'Has Catherine made you take a vow of eternal secrecy?' "'By no means. Catherine has not told me as much as she might. "'She has not been very trustful.' "'It is the young man, then, who has made you his confidant. "'Allow me to say that it is extremely indiscreet of you "'to form secret alliances with young men. "'You don't know where they may lead you.' "'I don't know what you mean by an alliance,' said Mrs. Pennyman. "'I take a great interest in Mr. Townsend. "'I don't conceal that. "'But that's all.' "'Under the circumstances,' that is quite enough what is the source of your interest in mr townsend why said mrs pennyman musing and then breaking into her smile that he is so interesting the doctor felt that he had need of his patience and what makes him interesting his good looks his misfortunes austin ah he has had misfortunes that of course is always interesting are you at liberty to mention a few of mr townsend's i don't know that he would like it said mrs pennyman he has told me a great deal about himself he has told me in fact his whole history but i don't think i ought to repeat those things he would tell them to you i am sure if he thought you would listen to him kindly with kindness you may do anything with him. The doctor gave a laugh. <laughs> I shall request him very kindly, then, to leave Catherine alone. Ah, said Mrs. Pennyman, shaking her forefinger at her brother, with her little finger turned out. Catherine has probably said something to him kinder than that. Said that she loved him? Do you mean that? Mrs. Pennyman fixed her eyes on the floor. "'As I tell you, Austin, she doesn't confide in me. "'You have an opinion, I suppose. "'All the same. "'It is that I ask you for, "'though I don't conceal from you "'that I shall not regard it as conclusive.' Mrs. Pennyman's gaze continued to rest on the carpet, but at last she lifted it, and then her brother thought it very expressive. "'I think Catherine is very happy. "'That is all I can say.' Townsend is trying to marry her. Is that what you mean? He is greatly interested in her. He finds her such an attractive girl. Catherine has a lovely nature, Austin, said Mrs. Pennyman, and Mr. Townsend has had the intelligence to discover that. With a little help from you, I suppose, my dear Lavinia, cried the doctor, you are an admirable aunt. "'So Mr. Townsend says,' observed Lavinia, smiling. "'Do you think he is sincere?' asked her brother. "'In saying that?' "'No, that's of course, but in his admiration for Catherine. "'Deeply sincere. "'He has said to me the most appreciative, the most charming things about her. "'He would say them to you, if he were sure you would listen to him gently.' "'I doubt whether I can undertake it. "'He appears to require a great deal of gentleness.' "'He is a sympathetic, sensitive nature,' said Mrs. Pennyman. "'Her brother puffed his cigar again in silence. "'These delicate qualities have survived his vicissitude, eh? "'All this while you haven't told me about his misfortunes.' 
"'It is a long story,' said Mrs. Pennyman, "'and I regard it as a sacred trust. "'But I suppose there is no objection to my saying "'that he has been wild. "'He frankly confesses that, but he has paid for it. "'That's what has impoverished him, eh? "'I don't mean simply in money. "'He is very much alone in the world.' "'Do you mean that he has behaved so badly "'that his friends have given him up? "'He has had false friends who have deceived and betrayed him. "'He seems to have some good ones, too. "'He has a devoted sister and half a dozen nephews and nieces.' "'Mrs. Pennyman was silent a minute. "'The nephews and nieces are children, "'and the sister is not a very attractive person.' "'I hope he doesn't abuse her to you,' said the doctor, "'for I am told he lives upon her.' "'Lives upon her? "'Lives with her, and does nothing for himself. "'It is about the same thing.' "'He is looking for a position most earnestly,' said Mrs. Pennyman. "'He hopes every day to find one. "'Precisely. "'He is looking for it here, over there, in the front parlour. The position of a husband of a weak-minded woman with a large fortune would suit him perfectly. Mrs. Pennyman was truly amiable, but she now gave signs of temper. She rose with much animation and stood for a moment looking at her brother. "'My dear Austin,' she remarked, "'if you regard Catherine as a weak-minded woman, you are particularly mistaken.' And with this she moved majestically away." End of chapter 8 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org Washington Square by Henry James read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy in El Segundo, California Chapter 9 It was a regular custom with the family in Washington Square to go and spend Sunday evening at Mrs. Almond's on the Saturday after the conversation I have just narrated, this custom was not intermitted. And on this occasion, toward the middle of the evening, Dr. Sloper found reason to withdraw to the library with his brother-in-law to talk over a matter of business. He was absent some twenty minutes, and when he came back into the circle, which was enlivened by the presence of several friends of the family, he saw that Morris Townsend had come in, and had lost as little time as possible in seating himself on a small sofa beside Catherine. In the large room, where several different groups had been formed, the hum of voices and of laughter was loud. These two young persons might confabulate, as Dr. phrased it to himself, without attracting attention. He saw in a moment, however, that his daughter was painfully conscious of his own observation. She sat motionless, with her eyes bent down, staring at her open fan, deeply flushed, shrinking together as if to minimize the indiscretion of which she confessed herself guilty. The doctor almost pitied her, 
Poor Catherine was not defiant. She had no genius for bravado, and as she felt that her father viewed her companion's attentions with an unsympathizing eye, there was nothing but discomfort for her in the accident of seeming to challenge him. The doctor felt, indeed, so sorry for her that he turned away to spare her the sense of being watched and he was so intelligent a man that in his thoughts he rendered a sort of poetic justice to her situation. It must be deucedly pleasant for a plain, inanimate girl like that to have a beautiful young fellow come and sit down beside her, and whisper to her that he is her slave, if that is what this one whispers. No wonder she likes it, and that she thinks me a cruel tyrant, which of course she does, though she is afraid she hasn't the animation necessary to admit it to herself poor old catherine mused the doctor i verily believe she is capable of defending me when townsend abuses me and the force of this reflection for the moment was such in making him feel the natural opposition between his point of view and that of an infatuated child that he said to himself that he was perhaps after all taking things too hard and crying out before he was hurt he must not condemn morris townsend unheard he had a great aversion to taking things too hard he thought that half the discomfort and many of the disappointments of life come from it and for an instant he asked himself whether, possibly, he did not appear ridiculous to this intelligent young man, whose private perception of incongruities he suspected of being keen. At the end of a quarter of an hour, Catherine had got rid of him, and Townsend was now standing before the fireplace in conversation with Mrs. Almond. "'We will try him again,' said the doctor, and he crossed the room and joined his sister and her companion, making her a sign that she should leave the young man to him. She presently did so, while Morris looked at him smiling without a sign of evasiveness in his affable eye. "'He's amazingly conceited,' thought the doctor. And then he said aloud, "'I am told you are looking out for a position.' "'Oh, a position is more than I should presume to call it,' Morris Townsend answered. "'That sounds so fine. I should like some quiet work, something to turn an honest penny.' "'What sort of thing should you prefer?' "'Do you mean, what am I fit for?' "'Very little, I am afraid. I have nothing but my good right arm, as they say in the melodramas.' "'You are too modest,' said the doctor. "'In addition to your good right arm, you have your subtle brain. "'I know nothing of you but what I see, "'but I see by your physiognomy that you are extremely intelligent.' "'Ah,' Townsend murmured, "'I don't know what to answer when you say that. "'You advise me, then, not to despair?' "'And he looked at his interlocutor as if the question might have a double meaning.' The doctor caught the look, and waited a moment before he replied. "'I should be very sorry to admit that a robust and well-disposed young man might ever despair. If he doesn't succeed in one thing, he can try another. Only, I should add, he should choose his line with discretion.' "'Ah, yes, with discretion,' Morris Townsend repeated sympathetically. "'Well, I have been indiscreet formally, but I think I have got over it. I am very steady now.' And he stood a moment, looking down at his remarkably neat shoes. Then at last, 
"'Were you kindly intending to propose something for my advantage?' he inquired, looking up and smiling. "'Damn his impudence!' the doctor exclaimed privately. But in a moment he reflected that he himself had, after all, touched first upon this delicate point, and that his words might have been construed as an offer of assistance. "'I have no particular proposal to make,' he presently said, "'but it occurred to me to let you know that I have you in my mind. Sometimes one hears of opportunity. For instance, should you object to leaving New York, to going a distance?' I am afraid I shouldn't be able to manage that. I must seek my fortune here or nowhere. You see, added Morris Townsend, I have ties. I have responsibilities here. I have a sister, a widow from whom I have been separated for a long time, and to whom I am almost everything. I shouldn't like to say to her that I must leave her. She rather depends upon me, you see. Ah, that's very proper. "'Family feeling is very proper,' said Dr. Sloper. "'I often think there is not enough of it in our city. "'I think I have heard of your sister. "'It is possible, but I rather doubt it. "'She lives so very quietly.' "'As quietly, you mean,' the doctor went on, with a short laugh, "'as a lady may do who has several young children. "'Ah, my little nieces and nephews, that's the very point. "'I am helping to bring them up.' said Morris Townsend. I am kind of an amateur tutor. I give them lessons. That's very proper, as I say, but is a hardly, but it is hardly a career. I won't make my fortune, the young man confessed. You must not be too bent on a fortune, said the doctor, but I assure you I will keep you in mind. I won't lose sight of you. If my situation becomes desperate, I shall perhaps take the liberty of reminding you. "'Morris rejoined, raising his voice a little with a brighter smile "'as his interlocutor turned away. "'Before he left the house, the doctor had a few words with Mrs. Almond. "'I should like to see his sister,' he said. "'What do you call her, Mrs. Montgomery? "'I should like to have a little talk with her.' "'I will try and manage it,' Mrs. Almond responded. "'I will take the first opportunity of inviting her, "'and you shall come and meet her, "'unless, indeed,' Mrs. Almond added, "'she first takes it into her head to be sick and to send for you.' "'Oh, no, not that. "'She must have trouble enough without that. "'But it would have its advantages, "'for then I should see the children. "'I should like very much to see the children.' "'You are very thorough. "'Do you want to catechize them about their uncle?' "'Precisely. "'Their uncle tells me he has charge of their education, "'that he saves their mother the expense of school bills. "'I should like to ask them a few questions in the commoner branches.' "'He certainly has not the cut of a schoolmaster,' "'Mrs. Almond said to herself a short time afterward, "'as she saw Morris Townsend in a corner "'bending over her niece, who was seated. "'And there was, indeed, nothing in the young man's discourse "'at this moment that savoured of the pedagogue. "'Will you meet me somewhere to-morrow or next day?' "'he said in a low voice to Catherine. "'Meet you?' she asked, lifting her frightened eyes. "'I have something particular to say to you, very particular. Can't you come to the house? Can't you say it there? Townsend shook his head gloomily. I can't enter your doors again. Oh, Mr. Townsend, 
murmured Catherine. She trembled as she wondered what had happened, whether her father had forbidden it. "'I can't in self-respect,' said the young man. "'Your father has insulted me.' "'Insulted you?' "'He has taunted me with my poverty.' "'Oh, you are mistaken. You misunderstood him.' Catherine spoke with energy, getting up from her chair. "'Perhaps I am too proud, too sensitive. But would you have me otherwise?' he asked tenderly. "'Where my father is concerned, you must not be sure. He is full of goodness,' said Catherine. "'He laughed at me for having no position. I took it quietly, but only because he belongs to you.' "'I don't know,' said Catherine. "'I don't know what he thinks. I am sure he means to be kind. You must be too proud.' "'I will be proud only of you,' Morris answered. "'Will you meet me in the square in the afternoon?' A great blush on Catherine's part had been the answer to the declaration I have just quoted. She turned away, heedless of his question. "'Will you meet me?' he repeated. "'It is very quiet there. No one need see us toward dusk.' "'It is you who are unkind. It is you who laugh when you say such things as that.' "'My dear girl,' the young man murmured, "'you know how little there is in me to be proud of. I am ugly and stupid.' Morris greeted this remark with an ardent murmur, in which she recognized nothing articulate but an assurance that she was his own dearest. But she went on, "'I am not even—I am not even—' and she paused a moment. "'You are not what?' I am not even brave. Ah, then, if you are afraid, what shall we do? She hesitated a while. Then at last, you must come to the house, she said. I am not afraid of that. I would rather it were in the square, the young man urged. You know how empty it is often. No one will see us. I don't care who sees us, but leave me now. He left her resignedly. He had got what he wanted. Fortunately, he was ignorant that half an hour later, going home with her father and feeling him near, the poor girl, in spite of her sudden declaration of courage, began to tremble again. Her father said nothing, but she had an idea his eyes were fixed upon her in the darkness. Mrs. Pennyman also was silent. Morris Townsend had told her that her niece preferred, unromantically, an interview in the chintz-covered parlour to a sentimental tryst beside a fountain sheeted with dead leaves, and she was lost in wonderment at the oddity, almost the perversity, of the choice. End of chapter 9 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, Read for LibriVox by Don Murphy in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy, in El Segundo, California. Chapter 10 
Catherine received the young man the next day on the ground she had chosen, amidst the chaste upholstery of a New York drawing-room furnished in the fashion of fifty years ago. Morris had swallowed his pride and made the effort necessary to cross the threshold of her too derisive parent, an act of magnanimity which could not fail to render him doubly interesting. "'We must settle something. We must take a line,' he declared, passing his hand through his hair and giving a glance at the long, narrow mirror which adorned the space between the two windows, and had at its base a little gilded bracket covered by a thin slab of white marble, supporting in its turn a backgammon board folded together in the shape of two volumes, two shining folios inscribed in the greenish gilt letters, History of England.' If Morris had been pleased to describe the master of the house as a heartless scoffer, it is because he thought him too much on his guard, and this was the easiest way to express his own dissatisfaction, a dissatisfaction which he had made a point of concealing from the doctor. It will probably seem to the reader, however, that the doctor's vigilance was by no means excessive, and that these two young people had an open field their intimacy was now considerable and it may appear that for a shrinking and retiring person our heroine had been liberal of her favours the young man within a few days had made her listen to things for which she had not supposed that she was prepared having a lively foreboding of difficulties he proceeded to gain as much ground as possible in the present he remembered that fortune favours the brave, and even if he had forgotten it, Mrs. Pennyman would have remembered it for him. Mrs. Pennyman delighted of all things in the drama, and she flattered herself that a drama would be enacted, combining as she did the zeal of the prompter with the impatience of the spectator. She had long since done her utmost to pull up the curtain. She, too, expected to figure in this performance to be the confidant, the chorus, to speak the epilogue. It may even be said that there were times when she lost sight altogether of the modest heroine of the play, in the contemplation of certain great scenes which would naturally occur between the hero and herself. What Morris had told Catherine at last was simply that he loved her, or rather adored her. Virtually he had made known as much already, his visits had been a series of eloquent intimations of it. But now he had affirmed it in lover's vows, and as a memorable sign of it he had passed his arm around the girl's waist and taken a kiss. This happy certitude had come sooner than Catherine expected, and she had regarded it, very naturally, as a priceless treasure. It may even be doubted whether she had ever definitely expected to possess it, she had not been waiting for it, and she had never said to herself that at a given moment it must come. As I have tried to explain, she was not eager and exacting. She took what was given her from day to day, and if the delightful custom of her lover's visits, which yielded her a happiness in which confidence and timidity were strangely blended, had suddenly come to an end, she would not only not have spoken of herself as one of the forsaken, but she would not have thought of herself as one of the disappointed. 
after Morris had kissed her, the last time he was with her, as a ripe assurance of his devotion. She begged him to go away, to leave her alone, to let her think. Morris went away, taking another kiss first. But Catherine's meditations had lacked a certain coherence. She felt his kisses on her lips and her cheeks for a long time afterward. The sensation was rather an obstacle than an aid to reflection. She would have liked to see her situation all clearly before her, to make up her mind what she should do if, as she feared, her father should tell her that he disapproved of Morris Townsend. But all that she could see with any vividness was that it was terribly strange that any one should disapprove of him. That there must, in that case, be some mistake, some mystery, which in a little while would be set at rest. She put off deciding and choosing. Before the vision of a conflict with her father, she dropped her eyes and sat motionless, holding her breath and waiting. It made her heart beat. It was intensely painful. When Morris kissed her and said these things, that also made her heart beat. But this was worse, and it frightened her. Nevertheless, to-day, when the young man spoke of settling something, taking a line, she felt that it was the truth and she answered very simply and without hesitating. "'We must do our duty,' she said. "'We must speak to my father. I will do it to-night. You must do it to-morrow.' "'It is very good of you to do it first. Morris answered. "'The young man, the happy lover, generally does that. But just as you please.' It pleased Catherine to think that she should be brave for his sake, and in her satisfaction she even gave a little smile. "'Women have more tact,' she said. "'They ought to do it first. They are more conciliating. They can persuade better.' "'You will need all your powers of persuasion. But after all,' Morris added, "'you are irresistible.' "'Please don't speak that way, and promise me this.' Tomorrow, when you talk with father, you will be very gentle and respectful. As much so as possible, Morris promised. It won't be much use, but I shall try. I certainly would rather have you easily than have to fight for you. Don't talk about fighting. We shall not fight. Ah, we must be prepared, Morris rejoined. You especially, because for you it must come hardest. "'You know the first thing your father will say to you?' "'No, Morris, please tell me. "'He will tell you I am mercenary.' "'Mercenary?' "'It's a big word, but it means a low thing. "'It means that I am after your money.' "'Oh!' murmured Catherine softly. "'The exclamation was so deprecating and touching "'that Morris indulged in another little demonstration of affection. "'But he will be sure to say it,' he added." "'It will be easy to prepare for that,' Catherine said. "'I shall simply say that he is mistaken, "'that other men may be that way, but that you are not. "'You must make a great point of that, "'for it will be his own great point.' "'Catherine looked at her lover a minute, "'and then she said, "'I shall persuade him.' "'But I am glad we shall be rich,' she added. "'Morris turned away, looking into the crown of his hat. "'No,' "'It's a misfortune,' he said at last. "'It is from that our difficulty will come.' "'Well, if that is the worst misfortune, we are not so unhappy. "'Many people would not think it so bad. 
I will persuade him, and after that we shall be very glad we have money. Morris Townsend listened to this robust logic in silence. I will leave my defence to you. It's a charge that a man has to stoop to defend himself from. Catherine, on her side, was silent for a while. She was looking at him while he looked, with a good deal of fixedness, out of the window. Morris, she said abruptly, are you very sure you love me? He turned round, and in a moment he was bending over her. My own dearest, can you doubt it? I have only known it five days, she said, but now it seems to me as if I could never do without it. You will never be called upon to try, and he gave a little tender reassuring laugh. Then in a moment he added, there is something you must tell me too. She had closed her eyes after the last words she had uttered, and kept them closed, and at this she nodded her head without opening them. "'You must tell me,' he went on, "'that if your father is dead against me, if he absolutely forbids our marriage, you will still be faithful.' Catherine opened her eyes, gazing at him, and she could no better promise than what he read there. "'You will cleave to me?' said Morris. "'You know you are your own mistress. You are of age.' "'Oh, Morris!' she murmured, for all answer, or rather not for all, for she put her hand in his own. He kept it a while, and presently kissed her again. This is all that need be recorded of their conversation, but Mrs. Pennyman, if she had been present, would probably have admitted that it was as well it had not taken place beside the fountain in Washington Square. End of chapter 10 this has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www. Dot LibriVox dot org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. Chapter Eleven. Catherine listened for her father when he came in that evening, and she heard him go to his study. She sat quiet, though her heart was beating fast, for nearly half an hour. Then she went and knocked at his door, a ceremony without which she never crossed the threshold of his apartment. On entering it now, she found him in his chair beside the fire, entertaining himself with a cigar and the evening paper. "'I have something to say to you,' she began very gently, and she sat down in the first place that offered— "'I shall be very happy to hear it, my dear,' said her father. He waited, waited, looking at her, while she stared in a long silence at the fire. He was curious and impatient, for he was sure she was going to speak of Morris Townsend, but he let her take her own time, for he was determined to be very mild. "'I am engaged to be married,' Catherine announced at last, still staring at the fire. The doctor was startled. The accomplished fact was more than he had expected. 
But he betrayed no surprise. "'You do me right to tell me,' he simply said. "'And who is the happy mortal whom you have honoured with your choice?' "'Mr. Morris Townsend.' And as she pronounced her lover's name, Catherine looked at him. What she saw was her father's still grey eye and his clear-cut, definite smile. She contemplated these objects for a moment, and then she looked back at the fire. It was much warmer. "'When was this arrangement made?' the doctor asked. "'This afternoon, two hours ago.' "'Was Mr. Townsend here?' "'Yes, father, in the front parlour. She was very glad that she was not obliged to tell him that the ceremony of their betrothal had taken place out there under the bare Alenthus trees.' "'Is it serious?' said the doctor. "'Very serious, father.' Her father was silent a moment. "'Mr. Townsend ought to have told me.' "'He means to tell you to-morrow.' "'After I know all about it from you. "'He ought to have told me before. "'Does he think I didn't care, because I left you so much liberty?' "'Oh, no,' said Catherine. "'He knew you would care, and we have been so much obliged to you for—' for the liberty the doctor gave a short laugh <laughs> you might have made a better use of it catherine don't say that father the girl urged softly fixing her dull and gentle eyes upon him he puffed his cigar a while meditatively you have gone very fast he said at last yes catherine answered simply i think we have her father glanced at her an instant, removing his eyes from the fire. "'I don't wonder Mr. Townsend likes you. You are so simple and so good.' "'I don't know why it is, but he does like me. I am sure of that.' "'And are you very fond of Mr. Townsend?' "'I like him very much, of course, or I shouldn't consent to marry him.' "'But you have known him a very short time, my dear.' oh said catherine with some eagerness it doesn't take long to like a person when once you begin you must have begun very quickly was it the first time you saw him that night at your aunt's party i don't know father the girl answered i can't tell you about that of course that's your own affair you will have observed that i have acted on that principle i have not interfered i have left you at your liberty I have remembered that you are no longer a little girl, that you have arrived at years of discretion. "'I feel very old and very wise,' said Catherine, smiling faintly. "'I am afraid that before long you will feel older and wiser yet. I don't like your engagement.' "'Ah!' Catherine exclaimed, softly getting up from her chair. "'No, my dear, I am sorry to give you pain, but I don't like it.' You should have consulted me before you settled it. I have been too easy with you, and I feel that you had taken advantage of my indulgence. Most decidedly, you should have spoken to me first. Catherine hesitated a moment, and then— It was because I was afraid you wouldn't like it, she confessed. Ah, there it is. You had a bad conscience. No, I have not a bad conscience, father, the girl cried out with considerable energy. "'Please don't accuse me of anything so dreadful!' 
These words, in fact, represented to her imagination something very terrible indeed, something base and cruel, which she associated with malefactors and prisoners. "'It was because I was afraid, afraid,' she went on. "'If you were afraid, it was because you had been foolish. "'I was afraid you didn't like Mr. Townsend. "'You were quite right. I don't like him.' "'Dear father, you don't know him,' said Catherine, in a voice so timidly argumentative that it might have touched him. "'Very true. I don't know him intimately. But I know him enough. I have my impression of him. You don't know him either.' She stood before the fire, with her hands lightly clasped in front of her, and her father, leaning back in his chair and looking up at her, made this remark with a placidity that might have been irritating. I doubt, however, whether Catherine was irritated, though she broke into a vehement protest. "'I don't know him,' she cried. "'Why, I know him better than I have ever known any one. "'You know a part of him, what he has chosen to show you, but you don't know the rest.' "'The rest? What is the rest?' "'Whatever it may be, there is sure to be plenty of it.' "'I know what you mean,' said Catherine, remembering how Morris had forewarned her. "'You mean that he is mercenary?' Her father looked up at her still, with his cold, quiet, reasonable eye. "'If I meant it, my dear, I should say it. "'But there is an error I wish particularly to avoid, "'that of rendering Mr. Townsend more interesting to you "'by saying hard things about him.' "'I don't think them hard if they are true.' said Catherine. If you don't, you will be a remarkably sensible young woman. They will be your reasons, at any rate, and you will want me to hear your reasons. The doctor smiled a little. Very true. You have a perfect right to ask for them. And he puffed a cigar a few moments. Very well, then, without accusing Mr. Townsend of being in love only with your fortune, and with the fortune you justly expect— I will say that there is every reason to suppose that these good things have entered into his calculation more largely than a tender selectitude for your happiness strictly requires. There is, of course, nothing impossible in an intelligent young man entertaining a disinterested affection for you. You are an honest, amiable girl, and an intelligent young man might easily find it out. But the principal thing that we know about this young man, who is indeed very intelligent, leads us to suppose that, however much he may value your personal merits, he values your money more. The principal thing we know about him is that he has led a life of dissipation, and has spent a fortune of his own in doing so. That is enough for me, my dear. I wish you to marry a young man with other antecedents." a young man who could give positive guarantees. If Morris Townsend has spent his own fortune in amusing himself, there is every reason to believe that he would spend yours. The doctor delivered himself of these remarks slowly, deliberately, with occasional pauses and prolongations of accent, which made no great allowance for poor Catherine's suspense as to his conclusion. She sat down at last, with her head bent and her eyes still fixed upon him, and, strangely enough, I hardly know how to tell it. 
even while she felt that what he said went so terribly against her she admired his neatness and nobleness of expression there was something hopeless and oppressive in having to argue with her father but she too on her side must try to be clear he was so quiet he was not at all angry and she too must be quiet but her very effort to be quiet made her tremble that is not the principal thing we know about him she said and there was a touch of her tremor in her voice there are other things many other things he has very high abilities he wants so much to do something he is kind and generous and true said poor catherine who had not suspected hitherto the resources of her eloquence and his fortune his fortune that he spent was very small all the more reason he shouldn't have spent it cried the doctor getting up with a laugh then as catherine who had also risen to her feet again stood there in her rather angular earnestness wishing so much and expressing so little he drew her toward him and kissed her you won't think me cruel he said holding her a moment this question was not reassuring it seemed to catherine on the contrary to suggest possibilities which made her feel sick but she answered coherently enough no dear father because if you knew how i feel and you must know you know everything you would be so kind so gentle yes i think i know how you feel the doctor said i will be very kind be sure of that and i will see mr townsend to-morrow meanwhile and for the present be so good as to mention to no one that you are engaged End of chapter eleven this has been a librivox recording of washington square a novel by henry james read for librivox by don murphy in el segundo california this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James. Read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy in El Segundo, California. Chapter 12 on the morrow in the afternoon he stayed at home awaiting mr townsend's call a proceeding by which it appeared to him justly perhaps for he was a very busy man that he paid catherine souter great honour and gave both these young people so much the less to complain of morris presented himself with a countenance sufficiently serene he appeared to have forgotten the insult for which he had solicited catherine's sympathy two evenings before and dr sloper lost no time in letting him know that he had been prepared for his visit catherine told me yesterday what has been going on between you he said you must allow me to say that it would have been becoming of you to give me notice of your intentions before they had gone so far i should have done so morris answered if you had not had so much the appearance of leaving your daughter at liberty she seems to me quite her own mistress 
literally she is but she has not emancipated herself morally quite so far i trust as to choose a husband without consulting me i have left her at liberty but i have not been in the least indifferent the truth is that your little affair has come to a head with a rapidity which that surprises me it was only the other day that catherine made your acquaintance it was not long ago certainly said morris with great gravity i admit that we have not been slow to to arrive at an understanding but that was very natural from the moment we were sure of ourselves and of each other my interest in miss sloper began the first time i saw her did it not chance precede your first meeting the doctor asked morris looked at him an instant i certainly had already heard that she was a charming girl a charming girl that's what you think her assuredly otherwise i should not be sitting here the doctor meditated a moment my dear young man he said at last you must be very susceptible as catherine's father i have i trust a just and tender appreciation of her many good qualities but i don't mind telling you that i have never thought of her as a charming girl and never expected any one else to do so morris townsend received this statement with a smile that was not wholly devoid of deference i don't know what i might think of her if i were her father i can't put myself in that place i speak from my own point of view you speak very well said the doctor but that is not all that is necessary i told catherine yesterday that i disapprove of her engagement she let me know as much and i am very sorry to hear it i am greatly disappointed and morris sat in silence a while looking at the floor did you really expect i would say i was delighted and throw my daughter into your arms oh no i had an idea you didn't like me what gave you the idea the fact that i am poor that has a harsh sound said the doctor but it is about the truth a speaking of you strictly as a son-in-law your absence of means of a profession of visible resources or prospects places you in a category from which it would be imprudent for me to select a husband for my daughter who is a weak young woman with a large fortune in any other capacity i am perfectly prepared to like you as a son-in-law i abominate you morris townsend listened respectfully i don't think miss sloper is a weak woman he presently said of course you must defend her it's the least you can do but i have known my child twenty years and you have known her six weeks even if she were not weak however you would still be a penniless man ah yes that is my weakness and therefore you mean i am mercenary i only want your daughter's money i don't say that i am not obliged to say it and to say it save under stress of compulsion would be very bad taste i say simply that you belong to the wrong category but your daughter doesn't marry a category townsend urged with his handsome smile she marries an individual an individual whom she is so good as to say she loves an individual who offers so little in return is it possible to offer more than the most tender affection and a lifelong devotion the young man demanded it depends how we take it 
it is possible to offer a few other things besides and not only is it possible but it is custom a lifelong devotion is measured after the fact and meanwhile it is usual in these cases to give a few material securities what are yours a very handsome face and figure and a very good manner they are excellent as far as they go but they don't go far enough there is one thing you should add to them said morris the word of a gentleman the word of a gentleman that you will always love catherine you must be a fine gentleman to be sure of that the word of a gentleman that i am not mercenary that my affection for miss sloper is as pure and disinterested a sentiment as was ever lodged in a human breast i care no more for her fortune than for the ashes in that grate i take note i take note said the doctor but having done so i turn to our category again even with that solemn vow on your lips you take your place in it there is nothing against you but an accident if you will but with my thirty years medical practice i have seen that accidents may have far-reaching consequences morris smoothed his hat it was already remarkably glossy and continued to display a self-control which as the doctor was obliged to admit was extremely credible to him but his disappointment was evidently keen is there nothing i can do to make you believe in me if there were i should be sorry to suggest it for don't you see i don't want to believe you said the doctor smiling i would go and dig in the fields that would be foolish i will take the first work that offers to-morrow do so by all means but for your own sake not for mine i see you think me an idler morris exclaimed a little too much in the tone of a man who has made a discovery but he saw his error immediately and blushed it doesn't matter what i think when once i have told you i don't think of you as a son-in-law but morris persisted you think i would squander her money the doctor smiled it doesn't matter as i say but i plead guilty to that that's because i spent my own i suppose said morris i frankly confess that i have been wild i have been foolish i will tell you every crazy thing i ever did if you like there were some great follies among the number i have never concealed that but i have sown my wild oats isn't there some proverb about a reformed rake i was not a rake but i assure you i have reformed it is better to have amused oneself for a while and have done with it your daughter would never care for a milksop and i will take the liberty of saying that you would like one quite as little besides between my money and hers there is a great difference i spent my own it was because it was my own that i spent it i had no debts when it was gone i stopped i don't owe a penny in the world allow me to inquire what you are living on now though i admit the doctor added that the question on my part is inconsistent i am living on the remnants of my property said morris townsend thank you the doctor gravely replied yes certainly morris's self-control was laudable even admitting i attach an undue importance to miss sloper's fortune he went on would not that be in itself an assurance that i would take good care of it that you should take too much care would be quite as bad as that you should take too little catherine might suffer as much by your economy as by your extravagance 
"'I think you are unjust,' the young man made this declaration decently, civilly, without violence. "'It is your privilege to think so, and I surrender my reputation to you. I certainly don't flatter myself I gratify you.' "'Don't you care a little to gratify your daughter? Do you enjoy the idea of making her miserable?' I am perfectly resigned to her thinking me a tyrant for a twelve-month. For a twelve-month, exclaimed Morris, with a laugh, for a lifetime, then. She may as well be miserable in that way as in the other. Here at last Morris lost his temper. Ah, you are not polite, sir, he cried. You push me to it. You argue too much. I have a great deal at stake. Well, whatever it is, said the doctor, you have lost it. "'Are you sure of that?' asked Morris. "'Are you sure your daughter will give me up?' "'I mean, of course, you have lost it as far as I am concerned. "'As for Catherine's giving you up, no, I am not sure of it. "'But as I shall strongly recommend it, "'as I have a great fund of respect and affection in my daughter's mind to draw upon, "'and as she has the sentiment of duty developed in a very high degree, "'I think it extremely possible.' Morris Townsend began to smooth his hat again. "'I, too, have a fund of affection to draw upon,' he observed at last. The doctor, at this point, showed his own first symptoms of irritation. "'Do you mean to defy me?' "'Call it what you please, sir. I mean not to give your daughter up.' The doctor shook his head. "'I haven't the least fear of your pining away your life. You are made to enjoy it.' Morris gave a laugh. "'Your opposition to my marriage is all the more cruel, then. "'Do you intend to forbid your daughter to see me again?' "'She is past the age at which people are forbidden, "'and I am not a father in an old-fashioned novel. "'But I shall strongly urge her to break with you.' "'I don't think she will,' said Morris Townsend. "'Perhaps not, but I shall have done what I could. "'She has gone too far,' Morris went on, "'to retreat?' "'Then let her stop where she is. "'Too far to stop, I mean.' "'The doctor looked at him a moment. "'Morris had his hand on the door. "'There is a great deal of impertinence in your saying it.' "'I will say no more, sir,' Morris answered, "'and making his bow, he left the room. "'End of chapter 12 "'This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square.' A novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy, in El Segundo, California. Chapter 13 It may be thought the doctor was too positive, and Mrs. Almond intimated as much, but as he said, he had his impression. It seemed to him sufficient, and he had no wish to modify it. He had passed his life in estimating people. It was part of the medical trade, and in nineteen cases out of twenty he was right. "'Perhaps Mr. Townsend is the twentieth case,' said Mrs. Almond, 
Perhaps he is, though he doesn't look to me at all like a twentieth case. But I will give him the benefit of the doubt, and to make sure I will go and talk with Mrs. Montgomery. She will almost certainly tell me I have done right, but it is just possible that she will prove to me that I have made the greatest mistake of my life. If she does, I will beg Mr. Townsend's pardon. You needn't invite her to meet me, as you kindly proposed. I will write her a frank letter, telling her how matters stand, and asking leave to come and see her. I am afraid the frankness will be chiefly on your side. The poor little woman will stand up for her brother, whatever he may be. Whatever he may be? I doubt that. People are not always so fond of their brothers. Ah! said Mrs. Almond, when it's a question of thirty thousand a year coming into the family. If she stands up for him on account of the money, she will be a humbug. If she is a humbug, I shall see it. If I see it, I won't waste time with her. She is not a humbug. She is an exemplary woman. She will not wish to play her brother a trick simply because he is selfish. If she is worth talking to, she will sooner play him a trick than that she should play Catherine one. Has she seen Catherine, by the way? Does she know her? Not to my knowledge. Mr. Townsend can have no particular interest in bringing them together. If she is an exemplary woman, no. But we shall see to what extent she answers your description. I shall be curious to hear her description of you said Mrs. Almond, with a laugh. And meanwhile, how is Catherine taking it? As she takes everything, as a matter of course. Doesn't she make a noise? Hasn't she made a scene? She is not scenic. I thought a forlorn maiden was always scenic. A ridiculous widow is more so. Lavinia has made me a speech. She thinks me very arbitrary." She has a talent for being in the wrong, said Mrs. Almond, but I am very sorry for Catherine all the same. So am I, but she will get over it. You believe she will give him up? I count upon it. She has such an admiration for her father. Oh, we know all about that, but it only makes me pity her the more. It makes her dilemma the more painful, and the effort of choosing between you and her lover almost impossible. If she can't choose, all the better. Yes, but he will stand there entreating her to choose, and Lavinia will pull on that side. I am glad she is not on my side. She is capable of ruining an excellent cause. The day Lavinia gets into your boat, it capsizes. But she had better be careful, said the doctor. I will have no treason in my house. I suspect she will be careful, for she is at bottom very much afraid of you. They are both afraid of me, harmless as I am, the doctor answered, and it is on that that I build, on the solitary terror I inspire. End of chapter 13 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California, This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James. Read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy in El Segundo, California.
Chapter Fourteen. He wrote his frank letter to Mrs. Montgomery, who punctually answered it, mentioning an hour at which he might present himself in the Second Avenue. She lived in a neat little house of red brick, which had been freshly painted with the edges of the brick very sharply marked out in white. It has now disappeared with its companions to make room for a row of structures more majestic. There were green shutters upon the windows without slats, but pierced with little holes arranged in groups, and before the house was a diminutive yard, ornamented with a bush of mysterious character, and surrounded by a low wooden paling painted in the same green as the shutters. The place looked like a magnified baby-house, and might have been taken down from a shelf in a toy-shop. Dr. Sloper, when he went to call, said to himself as he glanced at the objects, I have enumerated, that Mrs. Montgomery was evidently a thrifty and self-respecting little person. The modest proportions of her dwelling seemed to indicate that she was of small stature, who took a virtuous satisfaction in keeping herself tidy, and had resolved that, since she might not be splendid, she would at least be immaculate. She received him in a little parlour, which was precisely the parlour he had expected, a small unspeckled bower ornamented with a desultory foliage of tissue-paper, and with clusters of glass drops, amidst which, to carry out the analogy, the temperature of the leafy season was maintained by means of a cast-iron stove, emitting a dry blue flame and smelling strongly of varnish. The walls were embellished with engravings swathed in pink gauze, and the tables ornamented with volumes of extracts from the poets, usually bound in black cloth, stamped with florid designs in jaundice gilt. The doctor had time to take cognizance of these details, for Mrs. Montgomery, whose conduct he pronounced under the circumstances inexcusable, kept him waiting some ten minutes before she appeared. At last, however, she rustled in, smoothing down a stiff poplin dress, with a little frightened flush and a gracefully rounded cheek. She was a small, plump, fair woman, with a bright, clear eye, and an extraordinary air of neatness and briskness. But these qualities were evidently combined with an unaffected humility, and the doctor gave her his esteem as soon as he had looked at her. A brave little person, with lively perceptions, and yet a disbelief in her own talent for social, as distinguished from practical, affairs. This was his rapid mental resume of Mrs. Montgomery, who, as he saw, was flattered by what she regarded as the honour of his visit. Mrs. Montgomery, in her little red house in the Second Avenue, was a person for whom Dr. Sloper was one of the great men, one of the fine gentlemen of New York and while she fixed her agitated eyes upon him, while she clasped her mittened hands together in her glossy poplin lap, she had the appearance of saying to herself that he quite answered her idea of what a distinguished guest would naturally be. She apologized for being late, but he interrupted her. "'It doesn't matter,' he said, "'for while I sat here I had time to think over what I wished to say to you, and to make up my mind how to begin.' "'Oh, do begin,' murmured Mrs. Montgomery. "'It is not so easy,' said the doctor, smiling. "'You will have gathered from my letter that I wish to ask you a few questions, and you may not find it very comfortable to answer them.' 
"'Yes, I have thought what I should say. It is not very easy. But you must understand my situation, my state of mind. Your brother wishes to marry my daughter, and I wish to find out what sort of a young man he is. A good way to do so seemed to be to come and ask you, which I have proceeded to do.' Mrs. Montgomery evidently took the situation very seriously. She was in a state of extreme moral concentration. She kept her pretty eyes, which were illumined by a sort of brilliant modesty, attached to his own countenance, and evidently paid the most earnest attention to each of his words. Her expression indicated that she thought his idea of coming to see her a very superior conception, but that she was really afraid to have opinions on strange subjects. "'I am extremely glad to see you,' she said, in a tone which seemed to admit, at the same time, that this had nothing to do with the question. The doctor took advantage of this admission. "'I didn't come to see you for your pleasure. I came to make you say disagreeable things, and you can't like that. What sort of a gentleman is your brother?' Mrs. Montgomery's illuminated gaze grew vague and began to wander. She smiled a little and for some time made no answer, so that the doctor at last became impatient, and her answer, when it came, was not satisfactory. "'It is difficult to talk about one's brother, not when one is fond of him, and when one has plenty of good to say. Yes, even then, when a good deal depends on it,' said Mrs. Montgomery. "'Nothing depends on it for you. I mean, for—for—' and she hesitated. "'For your brother himself, I see.' "'I mean for Miss Sloper,' said Mrs. Montgomery. The doctor liked this. It had the accent of sincerity. "'Exactly that's the point. If my poor girl should marry your brother, everything, as regards her happiness, would depend on his being a good fellow. She is the best creature in the world, and she would never do him a grain of injury.' he on the other hand if he should not be all that we desire might make her very miserable that is why i want you to throw some light upon his character you know of course you are not bound to do it my daughter whom you have never seen is nothing to you and i possibly am only an indiscreet and impertinent old man it is perfectly open to you to tell me that my visit is in very bad taste and that i had better go about my business but i don't think you will do this because i think we shall interest you my poor girl and i i am sure that if you were to see catherine she would interest you very much i don't mean because she is interesting in the usual sense of the word but because you will feel sorry for her she is so soft so simple-minded she would be such an easy victim a bad husband would have remarkable facilities for making her miserable, for she would have neither the intelligence nor the resolution to get the better of him, and yet she would have an exaggerated power of suffering. I see, added the doctor, with his most insinuating, his most professional laugh, you are already interested. I have been interested from the moment he told me he was engaged, said Mrs. Montgomery. Ah! He says that. He calls it an engagement? Oh, he has told me you didn't like it. Did he tell you that I don't like him? Yes, he told me that, too. I said I couldn't help it, added Mrs. Montgomery. Of course you can't. But what you can do is tell me 
I am right, to give me an attestation, as it were. The doctor accompanied this remark with another professional smile. Mrs. Montgomery, however, smiled not at all. It was obvious that she could not take the humorous view of his appeal. That is a good deal to ask, she said at last. There can be no doubt of that, and I must, in conscience, remind you of the advantages a young man marrying my daughter would enjoy. She has an income of ten thousand dollars in her own right, left her by her mother. If she marries a husband, I approve, she will come into almost twice as much more at my death. Mrs. Montgomery listened in great earnestness to this splendid financial statement. She had never heard thousands of dollars so familiarly talked about. She flushed a little with excitement. Your daughter will be immensely rich, she said softly. Precisely. That's the bother of it. And if Morris should marry her, he, he, and she hesitated timidly, he would be master of all that money? By no means. He would be master of the ten thousand a year that she has from her mother. But I should leave every penny of my own fortune, earned in the laborious exercise of my profession, to my nephews and nieces. Mrs. Montgomery dropped her eyes at this, and sat for some time gazing at the straw matting which covered her floor. "'I suppose it seems to you,' said the doctor, laughing, "'that in doing so I should play your brother a very shabby trick.' "'Not at all. That is too much money to get possession of so easily by marriage.' I don't think it would be right. It's right to get all one can. But in this case, your brother wouldn't be able. If Catherine marries without my consent, she doesn't get a penny from my own pocket. Is that certain? asked Mrs. Montgomery, looking up. As certain as I sit here, even if she should pine away, even if she should pine to a shadow, which isn't probable. Does Morris know this? I shall be most happy to inform him, the doctor exclaimed. Mrs. Montgomery resumed her meditations, and her visitor, who was prepared to give time to the affair, asked himself whether, in spite of her little conscientious air, she was not playing into her brother's hands. At the same time, he was half ashamed of the ordeal to which he had subjected her, and was touched by the gentleness with which she bore it. If she were a humbug, he said, she would get angry, unless she be very deep indeed. It is not probable that she is as deep as that. What makes you dislike Morris so much? she presently asked, emerging from her reflections. I don't dislike him in the least as a friend, as a companion. He seems to me a charming fellow, and I should think he would be excellent company. I dislike him exclusively as a son-in-law. If the only office of a son-in-law were to dine at the paternal table, I should set a high value upon your brother. He dines capitably. But that is a small part of his function, which in general is to be a protector and caretaker of my child, who is singularly ill-adapted to take care of herself. It is here that he doesn't satisfy me. I confess I have nothing but my impressions to go by, but I am in the habit of trusting my impressions." Of course you are at liberty to contradict it flat. He strikes me as selfish and shallow. Mrs. Montgomery's eyes expanded a little, and the doctor fancied he saw the light of admiration in them. I wonder you have discovered he is selfish, she exclaimed. Do you think he hides it so well? 
"'Very well, indeed,' said Mrs. Montgomery. "'And I think we are all rather selfish,' she added quickly. "'I think so, too, but I have seen people hide it better than he. "'You see, I am helped by a habit I have of dividing people into classes, into types. "'I may easily be mistaken about your brother as an individual, "'but his type is written on his whole person.' "'He is very good-looking,' said Mrs. Montgomery. "'The doctor eyed her a moment.' "'You women are all the same, but the type to which your brother belongs was made to be the ruin of you, and you were made to be its handmaids and victims. The sign of the type in question is the determination, sometimes terrible in its quiet intensity, to accept nothing of life but its pleasures, and to secure these pleasures chiefly by the aid of your complacent sex.' Young men of this class never do anything for themselves that they can get other people to do for them, and it is the infatuation, the devotion, the superstition of others that keeps them going. These others, in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, are women. What our young friends chiefly insist upon is that someone else shall suffer for them, and women do that sort of thing, as you must know, wonderfully well. The doctor paused a moment, and then he added abruptly, "'You have suffered immensely for your brother.' This exclamation was abrupt, as I said, but it was also perfectly calculated. The doctor had been rather disappointed at not finding his compact and comfortable little hostess surrounded in a more visible degree by the ravages of Morris Townsend's immorality. But he had said to himself that this was not because the young man had spared her, but because she had contrived to plaster up her wounds. They were aching there behind the varnished stove and festooned engravings, beneath her own neat little poplin bosom. And if he could only touch the tender spot, he would make a movement that would betray her. The words I have just quoted were an attempt to put his finger suddenly upon the place and they had some of the success that he looked for. The tears sprung for a moment to Mrs. Montgomery's eyes, and she indulged in a proud little jerk of the head. "'I don't know how you have found that out!' she exclaimed. "'By a philosophic trick. By what they call induction. You know you have always your option of contradicting me, but kindly answer me a question. Do you give your brother money?' "'I think you ought to answer that.' "'Yes, I have given him money,' said Mrs. Montgomery. "'And you have not much to give him.' She was silent a moment. "'If you ask me for a confession of poverty that is easily made, I am very poor.' "'One would never suppose it from your, your charming house,' said the doctor. "'I learned from my sister that your income was moderate, and your family numerous.' "'I have five children,' Mrs. Montgomery observed, "'but I am happy to say I can bring them up decently.' "'Of course you can, accomplished and devoted as you are. "'But your brother has counted them over, I suppose.' "'Counted them over? "'He knows there are five, I mean. "'He tells me it is he that brings them up.' "'Mrs. Montgomery stared a moment, and then quickly, "'Oh, yes, he teaches them Spanish.' The doctor laughed out. "'That must take a great deal off your hands. Your brother also knows, of course, that you have very little money.' "'I have often told him so,' Mrs. Montgomery exclaimed, more unreservedly than she had yet spoken. 
She was apparently taking some comfort in the doctor's clairvoyance which means that you have often occasion to, and that he often sponges on you. Excuse the crudity of my language. I simply express a fact. I don't ask you how much of your money he has had. It is none of my business. I have ascertained what I suspected, what I wished. And the doctor got up gently, smoothing his hat. Your brother lives on you, he said, as he stood there. Mrs. Montgomery quickly rose from her chair, following her visitor's movements with a look of fascination, but then with a certain inconsequence. "'I have never complained of him,' she said. "'You needn't protest. You have not betrayed him. But I advise you not to give him any more money. Don't you see it is in my interest that he should marry a rich person?' she asked. "'If, as you say, he lives on me, I can only wish to get rid of him.' and to put obstacles in the way of his marrying is to increase my own difficulties. "'I wish very much you could come to me with your difficulties,' said the doctor. "'Certainly, if I throw him back on your hands, the least I can do is to help you to bear the burden. If you will allow me to say so, then I shall take the liberty of placing in your hands, for the present, a certain fund for your brother's support.' Mrs. Montgomery stared. She evidently thought he was jesting, but she presently saw that he was not, and the complications of her feelings became painful. "'It seems to me that I ought to be very much offended with you,' she murmured. "'Because I have offered you money?' "'That's a superstition,' said the doctor. "'You must let me come and see you again, and we will talk about these things. I suppose that some of your children are girls?' "'I have two little girls,' said Mrs. Montgomery. "'Well, when they grow up and begin to think of taking husbands, "'you will see how anxious you will be about the moral character of these husbands. "'Then you will understand this visit of mine.' "'Ah, you are not to believe that Morris's moral character is bad.' "'The doctor looked at her a little, with folded arms. "'There is something I should greatly like as a moral satisfaction.' I should like to hear you say he is abominably selfish." The words came out with the grave distinctness of his voice, and they seemed for an instant to create to poor Mrs. Montgomery's troubled vision a material image. She gazed at it an instant, and then she turned away. "'You distress me, sir,' she exclaimed. "'He is, after all, my brother, and his talents—his talents—' On these last words her voice quavered and before she knew it she had burst into tears. "'His talents are first-rate,' said the doctor. "'We must find the proper field for them.' And he assured her, most respectfully, of his regret at having so greatly discomposed her. "'It's all for my poor Catherine,' he went on. "'You must know her, and you will see.' Mrs. Montgomery brushed away her tears and blushed at having shed them. "'I should like to know your daughter,' she answered, and then, in an instant, "'Don't let her marry him.' Dr. Sloper went away with these words gently humming in his ears. "'Don't let her marry him.' They gave him the moral satisfaction of which he had just spoken, and their value was the greater, that they had evidently cost a pang to poor little Mrs. Montgomery's family pride. End of chapter 14 this has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, 
Read for LibriVox by Don Murphy in El Segundo, California. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.